Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Love begins for a lot of us as concept. I think when we're born, we just are it. And then we get all this social conditioning and program and the structures get into place. Like you're a Virgo, you're a Christian, you're a Canadian, you're a whatever. But I think once we're adults and we are, you know, we're really using our free agency, we play with what love is and what generosity is and forgiving is. So it's intellectual, it's conceptual, and the ego is going to be involved. Welcome to the Mark Rose Podcast. I have returning guest, Danielle Laporte. Welcome. Hello, returning listeners. Hello, Mark. Abiding Mark. Never left. <laughs> exactly. I, I'm so excited to have you back on. Obviously, our conversation last time was hitting the depths and people love listening to you. And I think it's because of a resonance of how you communicate, how you write. It just touches the soul on such a deep level. And your new book, How to Be Loving, When Your Heart is Breaking Open and the World is Waking Up. I'm not sure that any truer words have been spoken because I feel like the waking up of the world requires the breaking of the heart and those seem to be synonymous with one another. You know, heartbreak leads to wake up too as an individual. So what led you to to go from where you have been, you know, writing, doing Desire Map and all the things to this space of, of writing How to Be Loving? Desire is out. Virtue is in. That's like. Desire is out. Virtue is in. Feelings are so passe. Aspiration is where it's at. Different levels of exploration. Mystical exploration. That feelings come from the unconscious self. This is actually a, for me, it was a bitter pill at the beginning. Like even my happiness even like the positive emotions are coming from an unconscious part of my being. How, how can that be so? And then me being very clear, you know, for years getting clear, like love is not a feeling. Love is not an emotion. Love is a state of consciousness. When you're in that state of consciousness, or you're even in the presence of that state of consciousness, of course you have some feelings about it, create some emotions, but that's not where it's at. So the old question was, how do I want to feel? And, you know, I built a lot around that, like this whole facilitation, 400 people. This is actually... 400,000, right? Well, 400,000 people went through the Desire Map methodology 
And then now I have 400 coaches, facilitators. Yeah. So I took them from the thrust of this question, how do you want to feel? And all this curriculum around that. And this is actually one of the most daring things I think I did as a leader. I didn't even plan it. We were all on a Zoom call, you know, having our leadership jam. And I was like, we're changing everything. <laughs> it's not called the desire map anymore. The core feel, it's not about how you feel. Feelings are out. And uh, I don't know where we're going, but I'm asking you to come with me to the heart center. And I'm more interested in the intelligence of the heart. I'd always been interested in consciousness. And I'd always had, you know, with, with the desire map, and we can talk more about this. I think, you know, it's, it's very developmental. You got to get clear on how you want to feel, design your life that way. And then you got to move on. So it's like, yes, yes, with feelings, yes, with boundaries, but it's not the end point. And there was, I always had in the back of my mind this, you know, the Buddhist notion that desire causes suffering. And I really had to look at that. And I did. And I'm some I'm somewhere else now. In the exploration of desire causes suffering, which I guess, you know, also creates expectation and then expectation, you know, it, it are, they are not often met, unfortunately, in doing that path. Is, is that what led to it? Like, how did you all of a sudden on a Zoom call be like, yo, feelings are out. Heart consciousness is in. Everybody wrap it up. Let's go. Like that's a, that's a big leap. I'm sure you considered before you did it, but that is a massive leap. I'm wondering what was the turning point that made you realize that feelings come from this up are unconscious and, and there's this calling or leadership that comes from heart consciousness, which I guess you're living it when you did what you did. So, well, it was a slow churn and burn, but there's the, like the one vignette I got down to was, you know, about four or five years ago, I went through a dark night which I would like to qualify, if I can, as like a bona fide dark night of the soul, meaning I really did not know who I was. There was a real dissolution of ego. I didn't know where I was going to get to on the other side. So it wasn't just a challenging time that required everything from me. It was a, a real dismantling. Because I, I, I say that because I think the term dark night of the soul gets kicked around a lot in the self-help space. And we really need to give it the honor because you, you don't know you're in it until you is in it. So I was really there, not sure who I was going to be anymore. I had identified as an introvert. And really that was kind of like introvert was part of my brand. And I had become someone temporarily for these months of darkness where I did not want to be left alone. I didn't feel it was, I would just, the anxiety was surging. I was actually having some like self-harm fantasy, some suicidal ideation. And I, I knew I'd like never act on that, but it was just like, I really needed the comfort of my relationships. So a friend called, hadn't talked in a couple years. She didn't know the state I was in. I didn't know the state she was in. I was hoping that anybody called me that day, wanted to check in, like, right, you know, my psychological, well, where are you at? Are you coming up with a plan to take your life? Have you laughed? Anything, you know, anything. The conversation just naturally went to her first. And we actually never got to me, which was like super cool. And I just did what friends do. And I just listened and witnessed. And, you know, I was my loving self. Context, you know, I'd just been crying hard before she rang. And after we got off the phone, I, I just really felt that high. I felt so expanded of like, I was loving. I was full of capacity. And it just was like clear, like my 
purposefulness, me feeling, feeling connected to like source has nothing to do with whether I'm happy or sad that day. My depth, my capacity, this is it really, my capacity to love has nothing to do with my mood. So, huh, that is like, I became my own case study. So, you know, feelings really do come from the subconscious. Love really is beyond the mind. It's beyond feeling. And at that point, I would say like on the other side, I really committed, may have been conceptual, but this is like what's unfolding is like really committed to live for virtue. And that really works for me. Like that, that warriorship that we hear again so much about in that this space is like the warriorship for me is like, I am, I want to be the antidote and it takes a lot to do that, but it takes a lot of commitment and then you're going to get tested and then you got to show up and all those things. It's just challenging, but like things are chaotic. I want to be peaceful. Things are so divided and polarizing. I want to be a unifying agent. Things are ignorant. I want to be love. I got to do that whether I'm, I wake up in a good mood or not. So how would you define then living from this virtuous space then like to, to be committed to virtue? Cause it sounds to me like when you were in this state, you get this call from your friend, you're in service and then being in service, you feel something, right? Is it a feeling that you feel or like, does it change your state? Are you feeling brought alive? Is your thoughts of depression or like, is your depressive thoughts, are they gone in that moment? No, they're integrated. Say more about that. My experience is when I am embodying love, it's an isness, it's an awareness, it's an aliveness. I think it, I think that's the most illustrative word. It's an aliveness. I have room for my shitty, shadow, arrogant, manipulative, embarrassed, former Joan Jet brazen, fucking swearing all the time self. And she's there with me. All those fragments are there with me. And your fragments are there too. Like, you know, on the other side, and I'm, you know, it's not the only one you're to, to have this experience. Like I feel more lucid. I feel more discerning when I am embodying love. I can see people's shadow walking with them and I choose to focus on their light. I choose to focus on their intelligence and more and more. And this is the practice is I choose to focus on what we have in common. So I used to think in my little tiny narcissistic new age way that, you know, this whole theory that everybody and everything you bring into your life is a reflection of yourself. I used to think, well, yeah, but except for him and except for that, because I'm above that and I have evolved beyond that. And my learning now is that someone else may be 20 times more tyrannical than I am. These are all the things I judge, right? Tyranny narcissism, greed, you know, I revile all these things. I have strong aversions, which by the way, is also the other side of suffering. Desire, you know, aversion is just the other side of the coin of desire. But I have to ask myself, like, even if they are tyranny on steroids, I have to say, okay, where is that seed frequency of tyranny within me? And when I do that, my ego just chills out a little bit. And it's not because, and this, this I think is so uh, essential, those fragmented parts of the self don't chill out because you've been dominating them. And you're saying, you know, behave. We're not going to be tyrannical. We're not going to be greedy. They relax because you've been loving. 
they relax because you raise the vibration. You know, like one thing I'm just really on a soapbox right now is like, we need to stop trying to overcome our fear. Stop it. Fear is of the mind. You created it. Fear is your mind, baby. Why would you neglect, relegate, disassociate with any mind, anything you created, your own children, whatever it is, all stuff from the subconscious wants to be made conscious. So whether that feeling from the basement of your psyche is I'm fear, I'm happiness, I'm disappointment, I'm shame. It's all just saying, hi, parent, can you just give me some light? Just the light of your consciousness. So for me, becoming more loving was really integrative. And that's the hardest work is to love what you have loathed about yourself. And I'm not just talking about tolerance, I'm talking about actually have active, ongoing reverence for what you persistently hate about yourself. That's where it's at. It's hard. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's like the, the paradox of love is to be able to access that, to be able to access the shadow, to be able to access reverence. I love the word reverence because That's reverence, word. yeah, it's so beautiful. I think about reverence to self, reverence to nature, reverence to other. And I don't know that I really knew how to access deep reverence till I had to access it for myself, till that was the only choice, you know, to love the grief, to love the hard parts, to love the uncertainty. You know, you talked about when we experience, you know, we disdain or uh, are averted to um, tyranny or greed or anything like that. The ability to find those parts of ourselves, I think we're so resistant to because we, there's so much about self-identity today that's about be a good person, like present as a good person. And you see this, I mean, it's so pervasive on social media. It's, it's, it just makes me want to puke often when I see the virtuosity, which of course I then have to look at the parts of me that are virtue, you know, blah, blah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Your virtue signaling inner gremlin. Yeah. Totally. The part of me that wants to, you know, support the current thing, you know, and make sure everyone knows that I'm so good. And I interviewed a, a social psychologist who studies morality. And she talked about how in the research on virtuosity, people who, identify as more virtuous are actually more likely to lie in studies because they're more concerned with appearing virtuous than being virtuous. And I think that's really the trap of our times in a lot of ways. Yes, to all of that. But I would venture that what that person is talking about is a psychological level of virtue where virtue is actually debatable. This is the realm of morality and ethics. I mean, this is all subjective, objective, you know. So I'm interested in that place beyond knowledge and cultural norms that dictate our morality to really those higher states of being, which, you know, it's a belief I have. It's all beliefs, right? But I believe there is this universal intelligence that dispenses these different vibrations. Like, you know, how I talk and teach about it is, you know, we just imagine this orb of light that is divine love, this light of consciousness. You know, you can get into the layers of like the divine feminine, the divine masculine and polarity and all, you know, divine polarity. But that virtue is the the offspring of divine love. So like compassion is the daughter of love, forgiving, resilience, et cetera, et cetera. And it's beyond thought. It's beyond social structure. 
It is truly universal. So uh, do people who identify, see, like even that is challenging, right? Identity is a psychological structure of the mind. There's virtue and psych identity. And then there is higher states of consciousness, virtue itself. Yeah, I would imagine that authentic, true virtuosity, you know, the one that's embodied, the one, it doesn't even have an identity. It is a state and it doesn't need to be witnessed. Exactly. When you look at virtue signaling that goes on somewhat out there in social media, I'm curious what you think about it or, or maybe you could speak more on it. Well, there's faux love and faux compassion and we try these things on. I mean, you even look at love. Love begins for a lot of us as concept. Like I, I think when we're born, we just are it. And then we get all this social conditioning and program and the structures get into place. Like, you know, you're a Virgo, you're a Christian, you're a Canadian, you're a whatever. But I think once we're adults and we are, you know, we're really using our free agency, we play with what love is and what generosity is and forgiving is. So it's intellectual, it's conceptual, and the ego is going to be involved. We're going to fake being generous. We're going to write checks because we look good. We're going to be performative. The problem with the relationship between virtue and cancel culture is that we cut off people's learning curve. So first of all, I think on a soul level, your virtue is between you and your soul or the God of your understanding. And I as just some other, you know, bozo on the path. I have to leave lots of mystery. I don't know what your karma is. I don't know if what you're doing as, you know, like an actual virtue signal, like say so you're being like actually performative. It could be some agreement you have on some other dimension that's going to unlock some other contact and it's going to help you help so many people. I got to leave room for that. I think what happens is, when people are trying on virtue, like I'm going to be fake generous for a while for good publicity. I'm going to be pseudo inclusive because I don't want to get canceled. I'm going to use all the right hashtags. Leave them be. You may be wise enough to know it's performative because you've done your work and you have that lucidity. Just shut it because something good is going to come from that fake love. Love will always find a little bit more love. And they're going to get some DMs. They're going to get some thank yous. And you're going to be like, wow, I helped some kids, man. Oh, I really did contribute to the cleaning up of the downtown east side. Oh. And then the next move is actually a little more from the heart. And then they're going to look back. Eventually, we get to the place of embodying the virtue. Like, And these are these masterful people. You know, like there's some people I have in my life where I say, wow, you are so forgiving. And they say, well, what are you talking about? They're so, it's so a part of them. They don't even see it's a behavior outside of themselves. So I think someone can begin as a signaler and performative. Let them play with it because they could end up on the range of just embodied saint with that virtue. And I hope it almost goes without saying that cancel culture is so coming from the most wounded projecting place. I mean, this is just, it's psych 101 and the the absurdity. I, I don't think there's any, this is the strongest word I can use, the most accurate word. Just the absurdity to point a finger at someone and say, you aren't doing virtue right. Mm. Cancel culture to me has been, it's been very interesting to watch it sort of formally be a main aspect of culture for a bit 
to now seemingly like it's it's getting canceled or on its way out. We went from these really extreme ways of balancing out a space that didn't have much accountability. I understand that, you know, like anything that humans do, we often take it to the extreme and then we're left going like, well, if if there's no humanity, no space for someone's humanity now, then there's no space for my humanity. You know, I think, like you said, we can start with virtue being from an inauthentic place and get to an authentic place. We can start from this space of dehumanizing other and not allowing the space for reparation, restoration. I mean, it's the same way that we treat the earth with constant extraction. It's the same thing. And if if we expect perfection from other, which is totally impossible, especially because it's the expectations of the people you don't even know have expectations about the words you're supposed to use, the thing you're supposed to do. You don't allow space for it in yourself. And I think that's where it can get really scary. You know, I've been thinking a lot about that too, that I think when we stand in virtuous spaces engaged in cancel culture, we are actively seeking to put other people in our crosshairs so that no one dare put us in theirs. You know, if I'm actively participating in these movements of canceling, then it means no one's going to look at me. Of course, now people are canceling cancelers. So I guess it has turned around a little bit. I've witnessed many attempts at cancellation and it's amazing how traumatic it is because there's no space for growth. And I think it's just so indicative of our generally a lot of our culture and families and communities, religion, where we don't say to the person, like, teach us what you just learned. Like, imagine if that was, you know, the space that we cultivated, which I think we are learning to cultivate. I've done a lap around the track on being canceled. Where I was able to cultivate love, which, you know, wasn't immediate and took some work, but was, I thought, wow, I, I know that some of the people who have said the cruelest things and gotten people on the bank, like, you know, really just lit other people's tortures of hate. They don't want me to commit suicide. But I had, you know, when I went through some challenges, there were a lot of amazing things. The degree of pain that I observed was amazing. The mob mentality was amazing. The love was incredible. But what struck me was how many people reached out to me to ask me to make sure I didn't take my own life. These are, these are, you know, celebrities, some names everybody would know who had been through some rough patches themselves. And I'd say, you know, they call and say, are you thinking about killing yourself? And I'd say, no, brother, I'm good. Like, I got a kid. I'm, I'm good. I'm not, you know, and like, well, because I, I was, I was, I was having thoughts and I was like, you, what? It is like a train drives through your living room and everybody feels the devastation of that. And I, and I really don't believe that that's what any one counselor wants. I mean, yes, look, there are some dark characters who just want destruction and want you to like never show your face again. But I really think that what happens from the canceller is they want to be loved. They want to be seen, heard, felt, understood. And this is how they're going to go about it. It's a very unhealthy way to go about it because it wreaks destruction. But also, you know, this is a more metaphysical viewpoint, but I really believe that, you know, when you withhold love, it creates an energetic backup in your physical system. You know, there's, there's karma which I think people really misunderstand. But that energetic backup, you know, it might just begin with a headache. You might wonder, well, how come I'm not sleeping at night? Because you've been hateful. 
your energy bodies are clogged and that will have a material manifestation. It won't be pleasant. I've certainly felt that in the last couple of years, what you're labeling, because I, you know, speaking of tyranny, you know, I felt that way from the wonderful uh, Justin Trudeau and, you know, and I'm sure people listening have different opinions on him and his hair, which is lovely. He has nice hair. I found that in the feeling of being attacked, that I became similar in the desire to want to crush any thought that was itself tyrannical. Like when I felt hurt, separated, unseen, I want, I then went after the thought process that creates that, but I did it from an energetic of division. I create, like I've said this on the podcast before, but one of my real self-awarenesses from the last three years is that I started to cultivate the same division that I was experiencing. And I didn't even have to look far in my life to find people I really loved who were just making a different choice than me, but I was angry at what they represented because people who made the same choice as them were coming after me. Yeah, it was a real, you know, as you said, you sort of, that backup or that that energetic clog that happens really has us become what we despise, which I think is really indicative too of sort of politically, you know, I know we talk in, in politics, they talk about horseshoe theory and, you know, eventually the left and right become the same when they're so extreme. It's so easy to do within ourselves. And it's interesting from the ego perspective, we think not us, you know, or not me, even the idea that you said earlier, which made me reflect on it, even labeling something as virtue signaling is righteous in itself, because I get to be the one who decides what is virtuosity and what is not. So I'm just going to take a nice pill of awareness on that, which further separates me. I have a theory about people on the planet who are really being what a lot of us would consider tyrants. Do you want to hear it? Since we're like, yeah. okay, yeah. let's go. Okay. This is good. Right. Oh my God. Okay. So here's my thing. I have really spent a lot of time contemplating this. Just want to preface that so everybody like fully embraces it and gives me some little hearts and likes. I'm kidding. That would be virtue signaling. So this is a really meta meta perspective. So this is a metaphysical perspective. Okay. If you consider that love is in everything, that God is in all things or the universal mind, whatever language works for you, and that we all come from the same source. Okay. That's one. Let's just like post it. Note that. All right. And then there's, we all can wrap our head around this idea that sometimes things have to be uncomfortable for growth, right? Suffering leads to expansion. You got to have that uncomfortable, courageous conversation, right? The bile has to come out. The toxins have to come out. Like detoxing is an ugly process. Okay. So all the shadow that's rising up right now has to come up so we can be more integrated and whole and loving. Next post-it note. A Buddhist perspective would tell you that this is all Maya. This is all a dream. This is all theater. And of course, you know, I've been entertaining this notion for a long time through my own practices. I feel that there are times I do not live in this state consistently. There are times in meditation, in intimacy, in nature, where I feel like I just visited the true reality. This is what's actually happening. And then when I come back to this Zoom call and my clothes and stuff, I'm just like, this is theater. Okay, I can live with that. My job is to be oh an awake thespian to be awake in this game. Okay. Someone's got to come down. Someone needs to be the bad guy. There needs to be the protagonist and the struggle guy, the bad character. So I've been wondering if people who we think are tyrants, whose minds, you know, in my estimation, there are minds 
that are being hijacked by darkness and ignorance, really dark forces. If before we all get here, someone like a prime minister or a president says, okay, I'm going to take one for the team <laughs> and I'm going to play the bad guy here because someone needs to be the agitator. Someone needs to be the illness that we all fight through so that we realize that we are the healer, that we're strong. And now the interesting thing about this is that there's still karma that gets incurred. You're still doing things that are harming and divisive to countless numbers of people. You are, you are harming future generations. This is not love. We know what love is and this is not it. Maybe there is some kind of soul level heroism to being the bad guy and taking on this karma so that everybody else can wake up. Because I have to, obviously, we talked about this, I got to love my inner tyrant and see how I'm tyrannical against all that stuff. Right? Check, did it. Is everybody, we all come from the same source, is everybody worthy of forgiveness? Well, yeah, if a truth is true, it's got to be universal. Okay, well then, maybe you're playing a role that's valuable and you're going to pay the price for that role. And I got to thank you for being the heavy. Yeah. I can accept and get down. You down with that? I am down with it. I'm down with it because the alternative doesn't feel real great anyways. You know, like this guy's just a brick who in this lifetime decided to be one. And it's kind of like when you can take the perception that everything happens for you or it happens to you, like without negating the experience of victimization, of course. And I think that's often lost in the spiritual talk or in that perception is there's not a both end that's accompanied in that conversation. And, you know, who would choose to go through massive trauma? Who would choose to be born into families that have abuse, you know, what, or neglect or any of those things or all of those things? Except we do choose. And that perception to me is actually empowering. You know, when I think about what I've, been witness to and participated in, in the last, uh, two to three years, I'm so grateful because it's made me so much more aware. It's accessed a different part of me. It's really made me find what integrity is, you know, and, and what I'm willing to die for and what matters to me. I don't think I had really embodied access to what is the warrior in me. You know, I think because a lot of conditioning and all of that sort of in the message of toxic masculinity, what is lost is also essential parts of masculinity, essential parts of humanity, you know, being able to access parts where we do have to protect ourselves. We do have to stand up for what's right for us. And without the last two to three years, I mean, gosh, I'd still be the way I was before. And I know I'm so happy I'm not. <laughs> Is it an amazing? Growing is amazing. It's been hard. You know, I feel <laughs> yeah. similar to you. Like, I feel like I had a dark night of the soul last year. I feel like I visited a similar uh, evening, you know, not too long ago. There, they've been some of the hardest moments. But what's interesting about experiencing them is that I feel like I've touched a part of myself that I didn't have access to before, like a, a really... A reverence, like a deep reverence. There's like you're in the forest or you're out doing something and you 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 recognize your part. This is actually it. And I feel like in that that deep grief or that deep not knowing was actually a, an introduction or a returning or whatever the right word is. Where I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, there's more here. So is that the gift that we can find in your new book? <laughs> that and more. And, and let so me see. don't buy yet. There's more. 
301 pages. You will get that and more. How to be loving. When I saw the reviews on it, it's like the book of our times. I'm like, oh yeah, Danielle Laporte did it. Yes, she did. Do you have any special excerpts that you'd like to share perhaps? Yeah, sure. Just for everybody listening. I just want you to know that was not a setup. We did not discuss that before. <laughs> no, 100% full on did not. I set you up to potentially fail, actually. You did. You might not have had a part in your book. It's not a secret now. I wish that people would ask me to read from the book. I'll send out a note to the sort of... <laughs> to my future. I've not actually asked an author that before, which in hindsight is actually a great question to ask every time. So you're my first and here we did it well. Aim for transmutation. Shed yourself of all that's not aligned with the truth, the capital truth of you, the money, the identity, the dreams, the reputation, the status. And if all goes to divine plan, you might be unrecognizable on the other side of the fire, as every phoenix is. Change is not a passive event, and we need to understand that time doesn't change anything. Consciousness does. Vows lay the map to the future. And then dedication steps in and creates the future. So we have to make the vow to a beautiful ideal, to the virtues of the heart. And we have to devote our lives to it, just like we do at births and weddings and on deathbeds. We stand in love and we look ahead and we make a promise to make good on the vision. So as structures crumble and so many people are awakening, this is a vividly sacred time to avow to a new way of life. We have to come into ceremony with our personal suffering, with our global suffering. We have to approach it as a passage to higher consciousness. And so we have to submit our fears and we have to vow to love. The ceremony is underway. Shit, that's just one of the pages? Yeah, that's just like a little paragraph. There's so much more. <laughs> I mean, that's straight fire. There's practice. The cool thing is, like, you get, there's that kind of piece. But also, one thing that keeps coming up is people are like, oh, tell me about the thing where you just say, oh, I did that before. And I'm just like, what? Out of all of, like, the juicy, esoteric stuff, that's what. So how to dissolve boundaries and polarizations? You just shrug. And you think to yourself, you know, that asshole, that judgment, whatever it is, I've done that before. And again, it's not that you're putting your ego mind in its place. It's that you just, that's an act of love to see that you've been that bozo before. Maybe it was 10 years ago because you really have evolved so much more. But that little love shot right there is like, um, it's vitamins for the ego to just chill out and then you move forward. Yeah. Oh, I've done, I've, I've, I've done that before. You soften. In doing that, because I think that's a similar invitation to explore the tyrant in oneself to see a boundary pusher or whatever it might be. I think what's often lost in the conversation about compassion is I think we equate it with tolerance, you know, that we should tolerate everything is like, no, 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 no. You can be compassionate and boundaried AF. So, okay, let's talk a little bit more about boundaries because boundaries, one of my favorite topics I know for people listening, most people want them. They're hard to have, hard to get. Where do you find them? What store sells them? I'd like to know that. 
And what do they sound like? What do they look like? And what is the benefit? Well, I think the benefit is pretty straightforward, which is a regulated nervous system. I think your job, one's job as a child of the universe is to create conditions of healing for yourself. So it's like, you know, I see you get asked this question a lot, which is like, should I stay in the relationship? Should I go from the relationship? Listen, what would the most loving motherist divine person tell you? They want what's best for you. And maybe it means you stay for the miracle. Maybe you go. So that's the boundaries are a way to create conditions for healing for yourself, self-respect, but they're developmental. They're not the end game. And they're problematic if they are generated by the ego and not from the heart, which is for creating conditions of healing. So, you know, it's like someone can take your work, you know, they can take Terry Cole's work, wrote a great book on boundaries, Boundary Boss. I think everybody should, it's great. Terry gets it, right? Like one of the great things about Boundary Boss, I think is the scripting, you know, Terry's giving people like, hey, this is how this conversation go for people who can't even imagine what self-respect is do it. You got to have it. You're not going to survive without boundaries, but boundaries that are from that unhealed place that are just a pushing against, it's more division. It's more polarization. It's the, you know, the boundaries that become barriers. And what I see happening in that egoic space is people walking through the world with, there's like two standards all this works for me and all this does not work for me. That is divisive in its very nature. My personal experience with boundaries is they were essential. I had to get them, learning to exercise them. There were times I thought I was annihilating this part of myself. Like I thought it was so unspiritual. It was what I needed at the time. And now that I know that, like I don't even ask myself the question if I'm worthy or unworthy. That's ridiculous. My child, I would never tell my child, you're worthy, unworthy of love. Like I am love. I get to be loved and emanate love. I don't have many boundaries now. I've become a very, the poorest is not the word, but a more spacious person. Like, yeah, I have, there are requirements. Of course, of course I have a team. I'm in a relationship, all those things, you know, clean up after yourself because we're trying to create conditions of healing here. I need to regulate my nervous system because I am love and because I want to be of service. But you know what? If you say something shitty and disrespectful to me, I have more room for that than I used to. I don't have this character in me anymore that says you've crossed my boundaries. And I think we're running amok with boundaries. Like I just, you know, I, someone reached out, could I come to this event? And I was just like, oh, I would love to be there, but it doesn't work for my schedule. And they're like, thank you for modeling boundaries. And I was like, Bro, I just can't come. I'm booked. Like, it's not a me against you thing. It's not a self-respect thing. Like, you know, um, so I have let people treat me in ways over the last, I would say, three or four years that a lot of psychotherapists would say that was, that wasn't good boundaries. But for me, it was loving and I felt expanded and I just thought they're unhealed and I'm okay. I can, I can take that today. I can let them, I have space for them to act out and to not push back. I can understand that. I mean, if you have someone who you recognize doesn't even know what a boundary is, doesn't, hasn't healed parts of their reactivity, that we have a little more space and reverence and grace for that. So 
Because, you know, how do you have healing, expansion, change without grace, without, like, if you have enough reverence, for which we're not saying tolerate toxic people, tolerate cheaters, tolerate, I think that often gets misconstrued in the conversation about, because they, someone will bring up like a serial cheating narcissist. Well, no, and then it's like, yeah, okay, I get it. But for a relationship, even to learn where needs are, your boundaries are, it is required that you experience where they are not. You know, like how do you be informed? And boundaries are negotiations. They're not hard lines in the sand. And I think sometimes we don't realize that even what our expressed boundary is does have an impact on the other person. And it's okay sometimes to hear that impact, assuming it's safe and the relationship is safe. And the feedback someone gets from the violation of a boundary allows them to choose to change or not. What would restoration look like versus canceling their ass? Sometimes getting their ass out of there is the right thing. Totally. Yeah. Have standards, have boundaries. And, you know, P.S., you can actually forgive a cheating narcissist. You can profoundly, deeply set yourself free and set themselves free because that's the level of consciousness that they're at. You are partly responsible for that dance. You don't ever have to talk to them again. But just like in the grand scheme of things, of billions of us on the planet, of us learning our lessons, most of us can forgive even what we think is unforgivable. And then if you can't, that's cool too. Forgive that you can't forgive. It's not your thing this lifetime. Like, you know, my experience of forgiveness is, well, I think it's why we're here. I think it's why all this shit is going down on the planet. Everything, all this division is an opportunity for us to just expand a little more, listen a little more deeply. I think it's the default of the soul is to forgive, is to give love. The heart is for giving. Yeah, I think forgiveness is often misconstrued as as saying that what the other person did was okay. But I, I, th- I like what you said that, you know, ultimately it, it liberates us when we forgive. That's what it's about. And it liberates them, you know, in the prison of the trap door that we put them in, you know, or and said like, fuck you, you're staying in here forever because you fucking hurt me. But really we're just trapping ourselves even in that dynamic. Yes, and the the the, the miraculousness, the like octane of forgiveness is that what you did was not right and I forgive you. Like, you know, what's what's the evolutionary leap if it's like, oh, it was not that bad. And so I really forgive you. It's like, no, what you did is unacceptable. It's the opposite of love. And I am going to be the love that holds it all. And because I love myself and I'm creating conditions of healing, I am a forgiving you and I'm going to move on. And I might have to block you all those things. And you get my observation, and I I venture that you've seen this many times, is like we draw those boundaries and then we get softer and more mature. Time heals nothing, as I just, you know, intonated from the book. But um, and then we go back to those people. I've been in that person. I'm like, so my boundaries were pretty excessive five years ago. (laughs) I mean, you know. I've been public with this. Like I did not like my ex-husband on my property for five years. I was just like, don't, don't even. And I had to creep up to that. And it's like, stop coming in the house. You know, we're getting divorced. <laughs> and it was like, every time you come to the porch, like the adrenaline rush is so intense for me. I need this to not happen. 
So like, maybe you haven't been hearing me, but do that. And then I went back years later and was like, okay, that was a bit excessive, but I thought it was what I needed to do at the time. And I will be better now. Yeah. To know how to communicate the hurt, to know how to express the thing that's, you know, in the nervous system response as they approach the porch or whatever it is. It's like when we're in those dynamics, as you mentioned, with like a narcissist, or, you know, when I went through significant experience, significant betrayal when I was 19, uh, 18, you know, I look back now and I could access this, you know, when I processed it all, but I look back and I'm like, wow, those are the exact circumstances someone without boundaries ends up in and gets betrayed because I'd betrayed myself so long before the explicit external betrayal. I'm so grateful for it because even in the dance with the narcissist, as you said, you're co-creating it with them. You know, you are a match for that energetic on some level. And so what a thing to be liberated from, to finally be like, holy shit, I dance in that vibration and that experience. And I say yes to those things. I want to say yes to my heart. The narcissistic, that dance is, you know, especially in the self-help space, so many women identifying as empaths embroiled with narcissists, but not looking at their own narcissism. Like it's in you somewhere. You hear like, you know, I wasn't protecting myself. I got involved with a narcissist. Okay. That's some self-awareness for sure. Like you have an old pattern. And so you're kind of doing the self-abusive thing. Okay. Okay. But let's go a little bit deeper. I want to take it a little further <laughs> because universal law is everything is your reflection. So how are you just, just a little, just your 10% narcissism? Because if you are committed to love, to impeccability, to mental clarity, then you have to look at those seed frequencies. And it's really, it's really not okay for you to be a little bit narcissistic and have that be unchecked. I mean, everybody's a little bit narcissistic. Everything is okay. You got to embrace all pro fragments of yourself. But to say someone is all that and I am none of that, that's not how it works. Well, I know Francis Weller talks about how our, even our experience of being victimized has a narcissism to it, you know, and I, I've always resonated with that, that idea that it's what actually separates us from other too. But this idea that like, no one's hurt like me, no one's felt like me. And I think in a culture through cancel culture, just being one aspect of it, that really empowers the experience of the victim, which is important in obviously in the spectrum of things. But if we gain our significance through uh, presenting as being victimized, uh, we'll seek aspects of being victimized in order to gain significance and power. You know, I think it's an interesting dance of, it's easy to get trapped in. Like when I got cheated on when I was younger, I was holding the flag of like, can you believe what she did to me? You know, and man, I just wanted her to pay. I just wanted her to pay. I wanted her reputation to pay. You know, I was so young. I just wanted someone to hurt as much as I did. But again, I became, you know, I became the thing I was detesting, which, you know, in hindsight is really hard to see when we look back. The What I would call health, the experience of healthy shame, you know, to know that you have a better behavior available to you, a better way of being. Gosh, isn't growth great? It's great. I mean, what you're talking about is over-identification. The situation happened. It had an impact. It caused pain, but you are not that. This is where I like to kind of piece out from psychology. Again, there's like, you can go to, you can continue with therapy from an ego generated place, or you can continue with therapy from a heart center place. 
you know, this is what I would love to see happen in, in counselors' rooms, sofas across the globe would be, you know, like the initial few meetings, like you set this intention where, all right, we're going to look at the actual impact of your family of origin stuff and all the trauma. And we're going to witness that. And we're going to see all these patterns that get generated in your life. And we're going to have like deep empathy for your pain. And then we're going to move into forgiveness. Like forgiveness does not get fact. I've had a lot of therapy, had some incredible therapists, incredible. Like I would, if I had five children, they would all be named after my various therapists, you know, for sure. Like it's like, I've, I've been thinking like, what kind of honor could I give to Anne and to Michael? You know, that therapy helped me expand, but still, I think there's this more explicit intention to have, which is we're just going to see the fuck out of you and we're going to get you to really vibe higher, which is once we get you, once we take care of you, can you go take care of these other people and actually forgive them? That trap of, I mean, psychology is such an interesting, I, I having been in the realms of it for quite some time now, I think we can get so stuck trying to pathologize everything you know, trying to figure. And I do think pathology, obviously, is very helpful. It's helpful to know where a pattern came from, because then you recognize it's not your fault that the pattern lives in your life. It's your parents' fault. And then you look at your parents and they're like, fuck, they got parents. So it's their parents' fault. And it's infinity because it just keeps going up. And then you can blame culture and religion. And all of them have an impact. But at the end of the day, like, what am I doing? Who am I being? What am I changing? And I, you know, I think one of the traps of personal growth is that if you tell someone you're going to therapy or reading a book or taking a course, they'll celebrate you for the act of learning. But really, at the end of the day, like you can learn things, but if you don't live them, do they really matter? You know, like one of the lines from the excerpt you read, which I really, I mean, the following the capital T truth at the cost of, you know, I didn't, I'm not even going to close to say it as poetically as you. So this is the Mark Groves rendition. But in the the stepping towards the capital T truth and coming out on the other side and maybe not recognizing yourself, as you said, as a phoenix is different too. Can you just read that part again? Because I'm really fucking it up. And if all goes to divine plan, you might be unrecognizable on the other side of the fire, as every phoenix is. Yeah, like that. Isn't that the whole purpose of the fire? Yeah, yes. And that... That makes me want to cry. Mm, let's cry together. Honestly, it's so beautiful because you don't know when you're burning that on the other side, you're going to be green grass again. You know, you're going to be the new forest. You're going to be, or you burn away the shit that you didn't need anyways, like to allow capital T truth to emerge. I mean, what a gift to be left and be left with that, like to be, to leave yourself and be left with that. Well, you become radiant. Just so happens radiance is one of the seven virtues and how to be loving. So radiance is a soul quality. So on the other side of the fire, you are more soulful. Radiance is often thought of as like, I'm going to be the shiny person, get your glow on. And that's just more ego. Like, so there's this beautiful East Indian mystic. Her name was Ananda Maima. This is it. I think you're, you're, you're going to be down with this one. She said, suffering is the end of suffering. Because when you go through the suffering, and you are reborn, you become more radiant, more soulful. 
your relationship to suffering itself changes. You start to dance with it. And you've, you're also in a place where you, you don't, you want to create conditions of healing. You want to love yourself. You realize you deserve a regulated nervous system and love and clean drinking water and all of those things. So you don't want to go out and create more suffering, but you know, it's part of the human experience. So you're going to dance with it more. You're going to be like, now when it comes, I like, okay, I'm going to lean in. I'm going to be, when I get through this, and who knows when I'm going to get through it? Because that's the nature of hell, as you never know when it's going to be over. I'm going to be more myself, big self. I'm going to be more my soul. So radiance is what happens when the masks of the ego have been burned. And you're like, oh, here's who I really am. You radiant. Well, you're officially the first guest to emit uh, moisture from my eyes other than Kylie. And that's just reading one paragraph. You should read my book. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I'm getting it. Don't you worry. <laughs> I'm so appreciative of you and just the way that you uh, make your way through the world and the way that you write down you're making your way through the world in, in such a way that I think like cuts through right into the heart in a, in, and invites us and welcomes us in such a gentle way. And sometimes with some frosty, I like Danielle Laporte fire, but in a way that always says like, I just want better for you and of you and to remind us of that. I'm just so grateful. Every time we're together, I want to just hang out more. It's so nourishing. Thank you, Mark. We have to do it in person, you know? Next podcast, we're doing in person. How's that? Okay. It'll be a hat trick. It'll be the hat trick. So we'll do a live recorded podcast with a group of people. Let's do it. Doesn't that sound fun? Yeah. An event. An event. In-person, cellular experience. Everybody wants it now, right? I'm in. I'm all in. Um, Danielle, where can people find your book, more of you, all the delicious things that... All the things uh, everywhere. Uh, you can get the book everywhere. And there's also a journal and a deck because I love my journals and decks. I love my collections. And you're good at them. I can vouch for these things. I have two really awesome things going on. One is I have a heart-centered membership. So it's like spiritual support tools and you choose your own adventure and... Some are super metaphysical and some are one line practical things. And then I have this leadership program, which I'm really proud of, which is, you know, like at the top of the hour, we talked about, I told all these desire map facilitators, this is now about living heart centered lives. And they took the leap with me and there's 400 plus of them working in like high, high level of consultancies and yoga studios and coaching and it's called the Heart Centered Leadership Program. Where do they get that? Where do they find out more? DanielleLaporte.com. Everything is at DanielleLaporte.com. We're going to make sure that we put all the links in the show notes, everybody, so you can just click your little heart away. Make sure you go get Danielle's new book. What page is that part you read out? It's page 249. It's from a chapter called Reflective Living. And let's, let's take it out. Let's take it out, gross. Please continue to heal. Keep giving your most tender self the love that it is requesting every day. Loving kindness is the healing methodology that we're all looking for. And if you're inclined, include all sentient beings in your vision for happiness and health. And then back it up with action. Point your request for guidance to the highest sources to your soul and to the source that holds your soul. And if we give up our attachments to timing, then we can trust the inevitability, the inevitability of our healing. 
And if we stop judging what we have made of ourselves to date, then we will make better lives with more love. Faith is fueled by community. Look into the eyes of the person or the animal next to you with the intention to see their light and you will find it everywhere. Let's stick together and hold hands every step of the way. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark Gross. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.